Hello and welcome to Passing the Baton number 18 which is Spiritual Warfare Part 2. The date is the 27th of September 2008. The role of the prophet in any generation is to turn the hearts of God's people back to him. If you study the Old Testament prophets you'll see they were always urging the people to turn to the Lord with all their heart and live out their covenantal destiny with him as the wife of Jehovah. Time after time you see them agreeing to keep the marriage covenant and time after time you see them breaking covenant with God. The role of the New Testament prophet is the same, evangelizing the unevangelized parts of the believers' hearts. Graham Cook's website bears the inscription, Reaching Christians for Christ, calling God's people to him at an ever-deepening level, teaching them about the way he likes to do things, encouraging them to walk ever closer with him. So the role of a New Testament prophet is to teach and inspire God's people to follow him and him alone, as well as to prophesy. So the first thing we need to do is to recap. In our first study on spiritual warfare, we majored on regaining our inner territory, the war which Paul described as being waged in our members, particularly wrong attitudes which, if undealt with, can open us up to severe oppression and affliction by the enemy, physically, emotionally and mentally. It's absolutely vital that we win the internal battle. First, or we will be of no use on the battlefield. Romans 12, 1 and 2 exhorts us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is the word metamorphosed in the Greek and it means a complete change like a chrysalis to a butterfly. The enemy's strategy is to knock you out of the race, to do a kneecap job on you that will disable you from running and fighting. If he can get you occupied with being discontented with the church and your fellowship and other believers, he has effectively taken your focus. You are no longer focused on God, but on circumstances, people and situations and what you think should be happening. We may believe we're perfectly justified in thinking and feeling as we do because of what others did to us when in fact every time we are intolerant or have a bad attitude, react rather than responding, I know something about you too, mate, or have a bad thought life, it's an opportunity for invasion of the enemy into our space given by us to him. He's just disabled you. Accusation, demoralisation and defeat. Downward spiral. Many of us have probably never actually cleared out the attic space of our minds, which is where he maintains his strongholds over our thinking and therefore over our lives. And it's not so much an invasion as he's never been dislodged in the first place. We examined last time what warfare looked like in our everyday lives and circumstances and saw that we're always in alignment or agreement with something. Neither God or the enemy. There's no in-between. And the Bible speaks a lot about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So what we're welcoming into our lives is really important in terms of maintaining the spiritual integrity that enables us to go up against the enemy when we need to. 
So last time we earthed our warfare in our everyday lives, circumstances and relationships and saw how it worked out and how our part in all this is to make quality choices, not to move with the opposition in the flesh but to move in the spirit. When we do this, everything is offensive to the kingdom of darkness. We saw that it's our job as Christians to be an offence to the world, not an offence to people, but to the powers of darkness. We saw that every act of kindness is an act of warfare. Every time we don't retaliate when someone upsets us is warfare. Every time we show our love and kindness to our husband, our wife, our kids, other drivers on the road, the people in the supermarket, you name it, it's warfare. Every time we get to work on time and put in a good day's work without grumbling and complaining, that's warfare. The enemy hates marriage. He hates good relationships. He hates peace and tranquility. He's the author of chaos and confusion, spite, hatred, division, deception and every evil work. God is unceasingly magnificent. We really have to get a hold of that. And we, well, we are the glorious eternal companion of this incredible King. While we're here on earth, we are his warrior bride. We're to share his throne for eternity. We're joint heirs. A joint heir can't work alone. They can only act in partnership with another. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. We should be constantly declaring, I am the highly favoured one of God. I'm the glorious companion of a magnificent and incredible King. I believe we're coming into a time when the church is going to be in a payback situation. For everything the enemy has stolen from us, we're going to demand payback. Proverbs 6, 30 and 31 says, A thief, when he's found, must pay back seven times. However, to position ourselves for this is going to mean training. Right now a thousand of us probably couldn't take out one. We need to start to reverse that so that one can take out a thousand. Preparation is vital in order for us to take up our battle positions. There's an acceleration according to God's determined purpose for us. Without enduring the training we'll miss the opportunity of a lifetime to make the enemy pay. There needs to be a mindset change about who we are, where we are and who he is as he reveals himself to us as the warrior king. We need to develop a determination to allow him to be lord of the whole of our lives, not just a part. If we've settled for partial involvement, now is the time to rectify that and step forward fully into God's eternal purposes. For too long we've lived as though we are the tail and not the head. God didn't make us the tail. He made us the head in Christ. Everything we have, everything we are, is in Him. In Him is our righteousness. In Him is our victory. In Him is our peace. In Him is our rest. 
In him is our joy. He is our peace. He is our rest. He is our joy. He is our strength. We are learning to live our lives in the unbounded confidence of who God wants to be for us in our current situation. Outside of him there's nothing. He is life summum bonum. He is our all-sufficiency. I had a re recurring dream while I was preparing this session. In it, I was in a shopping mall demonstrating to the people there that they couldn't prepare a certain dessert without a specific ingredient, without which the dessert would have no substance. It actually wouldn't set. The ingredients looked the same, milk and pink powder, but one when mixed it wouldn't set, it just poured. The other ingredient when mixed had substance and it set, it was a bit like Angel Delight. The ingredients looked the same at a quick glance, but one wouldn't set as I say because it lacked the active setting ingredient. The people watching were not very interested and I knew that I didn't have their attention because they stood some way away from me and I couldn't see their faces. Some even walked away. The night before the second occurrence of the dream, someone was going to bring us a cheesecake but despite their best efforts, it had to be thrown away because they'd forgotten to put an ingredient in it and the dessert was useless, it wouldn't set. So she threw it away. I didn't think anything of this until I had the dream a second time that very night. As I prayed on the dream, I felt the Holy Spirit was saying to me, the active ingredient that will make this dessert sit, set, that will give it substance, is me. Without him we can do nothing. Nothing will set, nothing will gel, the dish will not be edible, it's fit only to be thrown away. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. That is nothing of eternal value. You can do things, but it will be in your own strength and not the strength and power of Almighty God. Excuse the pun, but it's food for thought. Winky Prattney has adapted a poem that speaks to the bride's tendency towards being seduced away from the things of God towards the world. And it goes like this. The church and the world walked far apart on the changing shores of time and the world was singing a chart's rock tune but the church a hymn sublime. Come, give me your hand, called the laid-back world and dance with me this day. But the love-cleansed church hid her blood-bought hand and solemnly said, no way, I will not give you my hand at all and I will not walk with you. Your way is the way of eternal death and your words are all untrue. Ah, walk with me just a little way, said the world with insistent air. The space I'm at's a pleasant place and the nightlife is magic there. You've been battling with me for far too long and let's face it, you've been so alone. Don't you think it's high time we called a truce and you found some place here for a home? Your life is so narrow and thorny and tough. See how mine runs so easy and smooth. Why be so repressive and out of it? In the finest circles I move. My way, you see, is a fun, fast one, and my gate is so broad and so wide. There's room enough for you and me to travel side by side. 
Half shyly the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow, and the fake world grasped it and drew her close and whispered in accents low, Your dress is too simple to please my taste. I've got all kinds of things you can wear. See these silks and chiffons and synthetic stones and this dazzling disco gear? The church looked down at her plain white robes and then at the glittering world, and she blushed as she saw his superstar style and his smile contemptuously curled. I can change my dress, she said to him. After all, I am under grace and her pure white garments were stripped away and the world gave her wealth in its place. Now your house is passe, said the proud grey world. Let me build you a place like mine, with a barbecue pit for the parties we'll throw and a mirror-tiled bedroom so fine. So the parties began and the dancing went on in the place that was once made for prayer and the church felt relief that the battle was over and at last she had no care. But an angel of mercy flew over the church and whispered, I know thy sin. Then the church looked up and anxiously tried to gather her children in, but some were down at the discotheque and others were off at play, and some were drinking in gay night bars, so she quietly went her way. Then the sly world gallantly said to her, Your children mean no harm. Just having some fun, he said, and he smiled. So she took his proffered arm and smiled and went back to gathering flowers as she chattered and walked with the world, while millions and millions of precious souls to the horrible pit were hurled. Then the church sat down in her ease and said, I am rich and in goods increased. I have nothing to need and nothing to do but to laugh and to dance and to feast. And the sly world heard her and laughed within, and mockingly said aside, The church has fallen, the beautiful church, and her shame is her boast and her pride. A voice came down from the hush of heaven from him who sat on the throne. I know your works and what you have said, and I know that you have not known, you are poor and blind and naked and sick, with pride and ruin enthralled, the expectant bride of a heavenly groom, now the hooker of all the world. That's a shortened version of the poem, but it makes the point, I think. For those of you who aren't familiar with American English, a hooker is a prostitute. The enemy isn't silly. He knows that he doesn't have to fight the bride. All he has to do is draw her away, to seduce her, romance her with the things of the world, to cause her to dress, to seek after and desire the things the world admires and pursues. As she runs this way, she's drawn away to someone or something other than her bridegroom. In that way, the enemy renders her out of alignment with her bridegroom her destiny and her inheritance. Without that alignment and inheritance she has no power or substance. She's like the dessert in my dream, useless and inedible, fit only to be cast aside. She's so like the world that no one would ever know the difference, and she's embarrassed to even name her bridegroom. 
We are called to be a culture which is counter to that in the world. Literally, that which is opposed to that which is in the world. We're a counter culture. We are in the world, but not of it. Salt, Jesus said, when it's lost its saltiness is fit for nothing but to be thrown away and trodden underfoot. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying you can lose your salvation. What you can be in danger of losing as the world swallows you up is your inheritance, both in this life and the life to come. In these days, God is holding out to us the opportunity to live a life less ordinary, to become part of something so glorious, so unimaginable, so amazing, as he presents himself to us and says, will you have me in my fullness, in your life as your beloved? Will you live your life here on earth as citizens of another kingdom? Will you be ambassadors for me in a country which is not your home? From the beginning, God has been looking for a people who will be totally and completely wholehearted in their love for him, in their relationship with him and in their love and relationship with God's people. In John 6, people were asking Jesus for a sign because they didn't believe that he was the one that was going to come. We do exactly the same thing. In John 6:41, people started grumbling about him and his words, that he was only Joseph's son and who really did he think he was. And then in verse 52, we find them arguing. This was a critical point because from that point, many withdrew from him and would not walk with him any longer. John 6, 66. This challenge always comes. Loving intimacy is his sole intention. Bridal partnership. The purpose of the bride is to become the beloved of the Most High God. El Elyon, the one of whom Melchizedek spoke to Abraham, possessor of heaven and earth. Everything in your life is designed to drive you deeper into God. You do not go out marching against what's coming against you. You go into God. He is a refuge for us. You go into your refuge and you come out of your fortress. He then does something on the inside and you don't come out of the same door you went in. You get into the face of God, into the presence of God, and he becomes to you what he wants to be. When you come out, you are a different person. First of all, you have to learn to come into the presence of God and learn how to be with him. It's a discipline of life in the spirit, and we're learning how to be with God and learning how to let God be to us what he wants to be. He wants to be your security. He wants to establish your identity. And he wants to totally convince you that you belong to him and no other. You are his peculiar possession. He's very jealous over you. You belong to him. And he takes it as a personal affront when the enemy comes against you. But he allows this so that he can establish you in who he is and in who you are. 
He will use every crisis to establish something in you. He will allow the enemy to contest the ground so that he can establish the truth in you. He always has a purpose. He always knows what he's doing and there is no need to panic. Nothing can work against you. Anything that comes against us is designed to establish security, identity and belonging. So you need to learn how to respond to God as your refuge. You need to learn to hide in God. When you stay in Him, nothing can touch you. It's there, but it can't touch you. The thing you're going to have to choke down is your ability to panic. There's no place of fear in agape, but you're going to have to learn that yourself. Responding to God as your refuge, He is your security, your identity and your belonging. He will face you with every fear that you have in your life in order that you will overcome it and find him as your refuge. That particular thing will then have no power over you ever again. If you don't allow God to do this work, you'll find yourself going over the same things again and again and again until finally you cooperate and you go through. Every time this takes place, there is a deposit of peace on the inside. But to obtain that deposit, you must go through and not round the issue. Spiritual maturity is abiding in who God is for us. A definition of abide is to continue to be present with and be embraced by. Ask to be present with him in any situation you encounter and to know and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in that situation. Abiding is holding on to God when there's nothing and no one else. He is your all-sufficiency, plus nothing. God has love planned for you in every situation you encounter. Even in the contradiction of your circumstances, he has made provision for you. God's very nature is your promise in every situation, who he actually is, who he declares himself to be for you. That's your promise for life and of life. So right now, stop the CD, take a moment, Ask God who he wants to be for you right now because that's your promise for life and of life. Security, identity and belonging. Because God's placed you in him and he has graciously given to you all things in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23, it says, Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's.
All things belong to you. And you, you belong to Christ, and Christ, well, he belongs to God. You have to say yes to who the Father says you are. I am the beloved of God. It's vital to believe everything in God's heart towards you is true. Your identity in Christ is so important because your inheritance follows. It's your inheritance in him to overcome. It's your inheritance in him to live a life of victory over the enemy and over your circumstances. It's your inheritance to come into all that Christ died to give you. These are not triumphalistic words, they are the truth. The enemy has consistently blinded the church to who she is. The glorious, eternal companion of an incredible king. She is a woman of destiny. She's his woman. We were chosen from before the foundation of the world to receive a royal inheritance, to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is releasing ourselves for us to see and understand who and whose we are and who we are and also where we are positionally. When the eyes of our heart become enlightened, our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit enables our inner eye of the Spirit to see what God is saying. Let's stop waiting for God to do something. He's already done it. Let's stop looking for the next wave, the next move of God's Spirit and start living in the reality of what is already ours. You are in Christ. The romance has begun. Find your place in it. The next move is yours. Everything in Christ is yes and amen. So what's your problem? As you continue to press into God, expressing your confidence in him and telling him who he is, you will find that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him will become yours experientially. Everything you experience should result in a deposit within you. If you've gone through something and not received that deposit within you, guess what? You're going to have to go through it again. God is always placing treasure within us, always adding to our internal storehouse. The trouble is with some of us, we lack the ability to stick with it. I prayed for years as a young Christian for the gift of what I called then stickability. The gift of staying the course, pressing in when everything looked contrary, trusting God, telling him he was going to come through for me because of who he is. I haven't stopped doing that. We have to develop a mindset that says I'm in this for the long haul, not the short sprint. We live in a world of instant gratification. If we can't have it now, we don't want it, whatever it is. There is a real need for the body of Christ to develop stability and stickability in their dealings with Almighty God. It's like, a, an, I will not let you go unless you bless me or until you bless me mentality. The Jacob syndrome. Determine this day that you're going to stay the course, whatever it costs. 
We can see from the history of Israel that she never learned her lessons. She learned nothing from being in slavery for 400 years. She learned nothing from being in captivity or carried away in the five cycles of discipline. Her rebellion against God and her disobedience consistently resulted in defeat. Time and again she was overtaken by her enemies. Indeed she was given over to her enemies by the Lord. But her obstinacy and rebellion always prevented her from gaining her freedom and her inheritance. What a tragedy. It's a terrible thing that largely she will not see or recognise her Messiah even now until she goes through the great tribulation which is to come upon the earth. Stubbornness, recalcitrance and rebellion are not virtues, though to hear some talk you would think they are. Never be proud of your rebellion against God. We cannot qualify to become warriors if we remain resistant to him and his wooing. God will not allow it. He does this out of love for us because if he allowed us to go on to the battlefield in that state we would be annihilated. Rebellion, you see, makes us vulnerable to the enemy in a warfare situation. The first rule of warfare is that you can't take ground from the enemy if he's got ground in you. Whatever it is in you that isn't surrendered to Jesus, abandoned to Jesus, is food and a camping ground for the enemy. He puts a cross there and it's a landing pad and then he comes. God is incredibly long-suffering with us. He's absolutely amazing with us in his patience and grace towards us. The very least thing we can do is to develop an attitude of gratitude towards him for his grace towards us. Beloved, whatever your understanding of being a Christian and part of the church is, I think it's about to change radically. Why am I saying all that? Because when it comes to spiritual warfare, we really do have to be in the place of absolute surrender to the sovereignty of God in our lives, because our lives and the lives of others may well depend on it. We only have to look at Israel's history, a sorry tale of consistent defeat in the face of their enemies. God's so brilliant, you know. He only counts the years when they're in fellowship with him. He never remembers the years when they're out of fellowship. How's that for grace? We are engaged in an unseen battle and every one of us is a soldier whether we like it or not. We are engaging with a malevolent foe who hates us with a passion and we have no choice but to fight. We cannot afford to be presumptuous in our dealings with him, neither can we afford to sit on the sidelines hoping someone else will come along and do the fighting for us. We're all called to be at least foot soldiers, if nothing else. Warriors are those who will cut through and take the ground, but they need support coming behind them from the foot soldiers in order that the ground which is taken may be held. Always two battles, one to gain ground and the other to keep it. 
and sustaining a breakthrough sometimes is almost harder than getting the breakthrough itself in the first place. This is why we must develop a long haul, not a short sprint mentality. Never allow yourself to be drawn into the human element of the drama that is being worked out around you. Circumstances will come to cause you to shake, rattle and roll. Their purpose is to dislodge you from the place God has put you in Christ. The enemy can't touch you while you remain in your secret place. So the whole of his warfare against you is to get you out of there by any means. He will provoke you to get involved with personalities, with gossip, with personal opinion and the observations of the natural eye. Isaiah said that Messiah would not judge by the seeing of the eye or the hearing of the ear. And as he is, so are we in this world. That's Isaiah 11, 3 and 4 and 1 John 4, 17. We have to look beyond the circumstances and situations in which we find ourselves to get a heavenly perspective. We learn to withdraw into God and ask questions like, what's the conversation in heaven about this situation? Remember, Jesus will be interceding for us long before we get there. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Nothing is coming as a surprise to him. So, Father, what's my part in this? How do I pray? Do I say it or pray it? The dialogue begins in your spirit, man. Your soul, on the other hand, always reacts, knee-jerk, fires from the hip. Your spirit always responds, because your spirit is always at peace. Your soul is always feeling something. I don't feel like this, I feel tired, I feel this, I feel that. When you're in your soul, you get attacked in your mind. And the enemy wants you in your soul because if he can get you out of your spirit, out of your place of abiding into your soul, he can touch you and bring you down. This is his hunting ground. Your soul is your mind, your emotions and your will. So he'll try to touch your mind. He'll try to touch your emotions. And as a result, a lot of the time you don't feel like doing anything. He'll just get you out of your spirit, into your soul and effectively knock you out of the battle and out of the race. Your spirit only ever sees God. Your soul sees everything and reacts to everything. It has an opinion about absolutely everything. Your soul is like Martha and your spirit is like Mary. Martha was distracted by so many things. Mary was just resting in the presence of God. Rest and peace are both weapons. Jesus said, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I you. His peace builds a bypass round our understanding. It builds a bypass round our ability to worry or be anxious or fretful. Just imagine a map and there's the city centre, all noise and exhaust fumes. Now look at the bypass that runs round the outside. 
If we are to win the internal battle, we have to learn to live from our spirit man, not from our soul, from the inside out. Jesus said of Mary, she has found that which is needful and it will not be taken away from her. In her position at the feet of Jesus, she sought his heart and mind on everything. In warfare, the enemy will seek to intimidate. There is a language of intimidation, so we absolutely need to learn not to react from our soul, not to bite that word when it comes, but to respond from the place of rest in our spirit man. We're learning to live from the inside to the outside, that place of no distractions. As our spirit comes into ascendancy, and lives constantly before God in an attitude of submission and adoration. Your spirit is always in the presence of God. It always wants a crack at the enemy. It's always up for the fight, but it's always submitted to God's agenda and timetable. When you learn to live in your spirit, your mind is renewed and refreshed because your spirit only ever lives in the presence of God. So we learn to stand before God in our spirit man, in the inner man of the spirit, and we learn to present ourselves to God to hear his viewpoint on what's happening, so that we are renewed in the spirit of our mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. When we occupy this position, we will not be carried away by circumstances. We will see beyond the natural into the supernatural realm, and peace will always be our umpire. We will cease to operate in the gift of suspicion towards others, which attributes hidden agendas to everyone else but ourselves. And we will live in a place of peace, above the clatter of the rational mind. There isn't a day goes by that the enemy isn't looking for some kind of weakness in your armour, a chink where he can get in, where he can get you to agree with his viewpoint, so you have to learn to live your life in like day-tight compartments, as Graham Cook calls them. Living one day at a time, keeping those accounts short, using 1 John 1 9, confessing your sins, daily at least, being active in God, reviewing your day, seeing how you could have said and done things differently, getting God's viewpoint. The Holy Spirit loves to be your tutor. When you lose it with your husband or your wife or the boss or the kids or other drivers on the road or whoever, apologise to God and apologise to them if you can. Doesn't matter about who was right and who was wrong. God will vindicate you. Give no place to the devil. This is what it means. Keep a clean sheet before God and men. Ephesians says, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's a very good rule of life if you have a problem with anger. Let me tell you, you'll only care about being right if you're in your soul. Wait up. Am I going to want what's left if I win this battle? Is it really worth it for the sake of the relationship? You may win the battle but lose the relationship. You will only be displaying your carnality if you go that way. Your spirit man will be at rest, leaving God to judge. 
We have to learn to absorb others' failures. Remember they're absorbing yours on days. While you're busy having that internal or external argument, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's the truth, because you're unwittingly doing the work of the enemy. If you aren't in alignment with God, guess who you are in alignment with? In everything we are either covenanting or aligning ourselves with the enemy or covenanting or aligning ourselves with God. No grey area. Develop the philosophy that yesterday was good and whatever I can learn from it I'll learn. Things I can thank God for I'll thank God for. Things I can change I will, otherwise forget it. I'm not thinking about tomorrow because I want to live today, one day at a time. And today, while it's still called today, I want to serve the Lord. I want to bless him. I don't want to disappoint him. I want to be doing the things I should be doing this morning. And this afternoon, I'll do the things I should be doing and this evening the same. In this way, you're learning to live in the moment with God, squeezing everything out of every situation for profit. And incidentally, you're learning to live in the spirit, not in the flesh. We have to win this internal battle. So what is spiritual warfare? I want to repeat there isn't a war going on between God and Satan. Satan is a created being, the highest of the angelic beings, very beautiful and extremely clever, but created nonetheless. If you read the introduction to the book of Job, you'll clearly see who is in control. The Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? In your travels through the earth, have you had a look at him? He's a righteous man. And the testing of Job begins at God's invitation. Why? Because God is the one who is in control. The enemy can do nothing unless God allows it. When we explain everything by blaming it on the devil, the devil did this and the devil did that, all we're doing is attracting him into our lives and negating the work of Jesus on the cross. You know Bob Mumford's story of the dear one in his fellowship who came up to him and said, Oh, Mr Mumford, the devil said this and the devil said that and the devil's doing this and the devil's doing that. And Bob replied, Sweetheart, there's not enough light in you to attract a used demon. Job's light made him a target allowed by God because he was a righteous man. God said so. Just remember, please, we aren't talking about deliverance issues here. We're talking about attacks and harassment in our everyday lives. You guard your thought life. Don't let him in. Close the door on his insinuations and accusations. Don't buy the lie about yourself or other people. Seek heaven's viewpoint. God is the one who's in control and who is allowing the enemy access to you. And he has a purpose in this that you might see maybe that what you are thinking and or doing is putting you in the enemy's camp, not God's. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it is the wellspring of life. The most powerful weapon of spiritual warfare is a daily walk of obedience to the Lord. 
That's it. Submission to God's authority in your life automatically gives you authority over the evil one. James says so in James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourself to God, therefore. Resist the devil and he will flee. Jesus has very real power over the enemy. He's destroyed all his works, undermined his authority, disarmed him, humiliated him, rendered him powerless, and he gave us that victory so that we are always led in triumph, not, I hasten to add, triumphalism, which is a display or feeling of often excessive pride in having achieved a victory or having been proved right. We are led in the triumph of Christ's victory on the cross. What does that mean? It means we fight from a place of victory, not towards it. We don't fight to get victory, we fight because we have it. Victory has to be received, it cannot be achieved. Victory has been given to us. It can't be earned, it's a gift. But we have to be in the right place to receive it from God. Those words don't just relate to God's ultimate victory over the enemy, but to our life now, as inheritors of his kingdom, that his kingdom may come and his will may be done in earth in exactly the same way as it is in heaven. That's why we pray this prayer, asking for his sovereign will to be done in this physical earth, and we are the means by which it gets done through us as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are his representatives here, therefore we must live a life different from those round us. We're strangers and aliens here. We are ambassadors for Christ in this world. A definition of ambassadors, diplomatic officials of the highest rank sent by one country as its long-term representative to another. Official representatives of an organisation or movement visiting the country as an ambassador for an organisation dedicated to saving endangered species. That's us in a nutshell. We're here to save an endangered species, mankind. And because of this, we're caught up in the crossfire between God and the enemy. God has always promised his people that he would drive out their enemies before them and lead them in power and triumph to possess the land he's given them. This is why we see so much about warfare and taking territory in the Old Testament. But they had to be in the right place both to receive it and hold it. Israel was commanded to destroy everything in their path or it would destroy them. They never achieved this, and as a result, they lost what had been given to them. It slipped from their fingers. To this day, they're still fighting for the right to stay in the physical land they never wholly possessed and thus lost. Unlike Israel, the land we are to possess and hold is our inner territory. This is why we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is the minister of the interior our interior to enable us to regain that which was lost at the fall and keep it 
This is our primary area of warfare. As we saw before, if we cannot rule our own spirit, we cannot engage with the enemy because you cannot take ground from the enemy if he has ground in you. Basic, fundamental, number one rule of warfare. And rule number two, don't get drawn into the human element of what is happening round you. Seek to find out God's perspective on what's occurring. Find out what the Father and Jesus are saying. What's the conversation in heaven about this? So much of our time and our energy goes into winning the internal battle for supremacy. That the Holy Spirit may be ruling us, not our flesh. Surrender to God isn't something you do once. Time and again he will face you with choices. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 7 and 8 Life in the Spirit is about advancing from one level to another. As we grow in submission and authority, beating the devil on the, author on the level we are on, God moves us up and the whole process starts all over again. Everything takes us further into the heart of the one who loves us to distraction. He's so careful with us. He will not take us on until he's satisfied with our progress and growth. He doesn't measure time. He measures growth. He will not expose us to anything that isn't necessary for our welfare and growth. He sets a jealous guard over us. Submission to his authority and rule in our lives is a prerequisite of real warfare or you'll find yourself becoming an unnecessary casualty. We're learning constantly, every day, always to embrace the finished work of Christ because where Jesus finished is where we start. We're saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. The rebirth is just part, is just the start of our journey into the heart and purposes of God and the fullness of what Jesus won for us on the cross. 1 John 3 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus submitted to the cross in order to destroy all the works of the devil and undermine his authority. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them in it. Jesus disarmed the enemy and made a public display of him in triumph. Hebrews 2.14 Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus has rendered the enemy powerless. That means he's brought to nothing, made of no effect, his power against believers. 1 Corinthians 15.57 but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's God who gives us the victory in Christ. You don't get it yourself. It's a gift. 
otherwise it would be works, not grace. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Why do we have to fight then? If it's all ours, if it's all done, what's all this battle stuff about? To understand that, we have to see that God hasn't changed in the way that he does things. In the Old Testament, we continually see him telling the children of Israel, I have given these things into your hand, and then they had to go out and fight for it. The territory they fought over was literal ground. Ours is always the internal battle, flesh versus spirit. The battle is mine, I am the warrior king, lord of Sabaoth, go in and possess. He promised them the land of Canaan, houses they hadn't built, vines they hadn't planted, and wells they hadn't dug. But when they got over the Jordan, they had to fight. It seems paradoxical. On one hand, the land is being given to them. On the other, they have to fight for it. On the one hand, we are in Christ and the victory is his. On the other, we're in a battle and we have to fight on days. And the biggest battle we will have is always with our own carnality. Until that's subdued, we cannot go out against the enemy. God promises Abraham the land of Canaan and in due time the Israelites cross over the river to take possession. It's interesting that the Bible freely admits that the land belonged in the natural to someone else, the Canaanites, but it was God's to a portion. He is the one great territorial spirit and it was his good pleasure to give it to them. Their task was to possess the land. Joshua at Jericho, I have given it into your hands, God says. They have to do the pot, the trumpet and the marching in silence and finally the shout for the walls to fall. They also had to put to death everything and everyone inside the city. We have to fight. Everything has been given to us in Christ, but just as possession of the land depended on Israel's responses, so possession of everything Jesus won for us on the cross is governed by our responses. Their role was active, not passive, and so is ours. The fullness won't jump into our laps. God acted on their behalf as they loved him, were loyal and obedient to him, and moved forward in response to his word. All the time they were loyal to God as that one master they were winning. When they changed their allegiance, disaster struck them. Jesus draws the same connection between loyalty and love in John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A quick read of the book of Judges shows how God gives his people victory when they're in alignment with him. Time and again, Israel turned away from the Lord and worshipped other gods and followed the customs of the people round them. But when they cried out to the Lord, he sent judges among them, raised up for that specific purpose of warfare, 
to enable them to defeat their foes and live at peace. It says in the beginning of the book of Judges that God left Israel enemies in order that they might learn to fight because this generation had no knowledge of warfare. Judges 2.10 When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work he had done for Israel. And Judges 3.1 and 2 now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not, not formerly known it. This is the love, goodness and kindness of God in operation. He knows they live in a fallen world and they would need to be able to defend themselves from outside attack. And he constantly gave Israel the opportunity to learn to walk with him properly. Every act of the enemy is an act of war to get you out of the spirit and into the flesh, into your natural thinking. Every single thing he does is towards that end that he might accuse you. Every act of God is designed to keep you in the spirit, in the covenant care of your God. The battle we're talking about is the age-old battle of the flesh versus the spirit. In deliverance, everything we have, we have to fight for to get and fight to hold. One battle to get free, another battle to stay free. We can't rest in the fact that we've won in a particular area. Those of you who know me know that I was drinking heavily when I was saved and I was dry for ten years. Then the whole thing started all over again. It was at that point that I realised I had to hold the ground that God had given me because the enemy was prowling around seeking to take it back again and he just waited his time to take that ground and move in. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walks about seeking whom he may devour. One battle to get free, another battle to stay free. And incidentally, sober there's not talking about drink, as you well know. If you read the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you see some hard words calling for change and repentance. Why? So that the churches will be overcomers. Every one of the churches receives a word about overcoming and the rewards of standing fast. The basis of that power is the cross of Jesus. He has overcome and we are learning to live in his overcoming nature. So we embrace his finished work and we say like Paul, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory in Christ. This is not a tub-thumping, triumphalistic, knee-jerking, charismatic response. It's a quiet, emphatic, faith-filled perspective which tells us where to focus our attention on Jesus, not on self. 
Thanksgiving is a major part of warfare. Just listen to this testimony, which I received from Graham Cook's office on the 21st of August this year. Just before our son left for Iraq, we listened to Graham teach about the power of personal worship, thanksgiving and praise. It was the last thing we listened to together. Forrest felt led to send his son his guitar, not knowing if it would even get to him, but it did. A week or so later, his son returned from a 20-hour exhausting patrol. There was a great deal of violence increasing in the area, and for the first time he felt real fear in the camp. He laid down to finally rest, and the Holy Spirit said, Take your guitar, stand on the roof of the barracks, and worship me. The son desperately wanted just to sleep, so he tried to ignore it. But the spirit became more persistent and yet had such a kind tone. He remembered that Graham said that God was the kindest person he'd ever met and decided it must be God. He got his guitar and went up on the roof, feeling a bit foolish, but he began to worship. Suddenly he could actually see angels with his natural eyes. While he'd been raised in a spiritual household, he'd never had anything even close to this happen. The angels were in a fierce battle with demons over the camp. The more he worshipped, the more peaceful he became. And he suddenly remembered what Graham had said. Rest and worship are weapons. Apparently he worshipped for about two hours, all the while watching the battle about a hundred feet above the camp. The angels prevailed and the demons fled. He sensed a tangible peace and the Holy Spirit simply whispered, Thanks, son. Thanks for coming up here. The next day the fear in the camp was replaced by peace and an extreme confidence that all was well. Do we need any more proof about the fact that thanksgiving, praise and worship is vital when the enemy attacks? This is what our role on earth is, being a force for good, touching heaven, touching earth, ambassadors for Christ. Beloved, we have a job to do. When we know we're under attack, we have to learn to retreat into God and to give him thanksgiving, praise and worship. You aren't giving thanks for what you're experiencing. You're giving thanks for the fact that he is with you in it. This is why Paul says in Thessalonians, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. So what do we do when we suspect we're under attack? The first thing is that we need to establish that we are being attacked. And we do this by asking the Lord a few questions. Those of you with us at the first teaching on warfare will be familiar with these. The purpose for these questions is that we must find out who is doing what to whom. A lot of us rush into spiritual warfare when it isn't the enemy at all, but God who is bringing about the circumstances. So question number one. Am I reaping what I've sown? Question number two. Are you nailing something in my life? Are you killing my carnality? In other words, is this the cross at work? 
God and the devil both have the same agenda, you know. They both want to kill you. Question number three. Is this training for reigning? Lord, are you using this to toughen me up in some way? Most often we aren't on the battlefield. We're at boot camp, square bashing, going through manoeuvres, depending on our mat maturity in the Lord. Question number four. Is this you? Question number five. Is this the devil? It's worth asking all five of these questions because sometimes it's a little bit of each. So the next time you run into a circumstance and start to blame the devil, run those five questions before the Lord before you do anything else. This is so that we know whether we have to submit to God in this instance or whether we have to resist the enemy. Simple. A gift we really need to employ at this time too is the gift of discerning of spirits. This is a vital gift in terms of raising our spiritual awareness about the opposition around us in life. This gift is not primarily so we can detect the enemy because every gift that God gives us is always focused on him. The gift of discerning of spirit's prime purpose is to tell you what is of God and what is not. Whether what you're up against is of God or whether it's human or demonic in origin. So the first question is, is this God? We are not discerning demons. The gift of discerning of spirits is that we know if this is God. We focus on God always. If you can't discern God, the next thing the gift will tell you is if this is human opposition. And the last thing you're left with by a process of elimination is, well, it's got to be the enemy. Sometimes, as I said, things happen and everyone is quick to blame it on a demon. Sometimes you have to know what's the hand of God, what's the hand of people and what is the hand of the enemy. So we need to know if it is God to submit to him. If it's people, to be gracious, and if it's the enemy, then we fight. In this way, we don't end up fighting the wrong thing. We don't end up trying to bind the cross, or getting cross with people, or binding people even, or demonising the people around us. But we actually know this is a demon, because by a process of elimination, we have discovered this is the case. Sometimes the Holy Spirit enables you to short-circuit all of this and you know instinctively this is the work of the enemy. But don't just go out there and assume that everything is demonic that's against you because it's simply not true. So having established that you are in fact under attack, the first thing is to come and submit your life to God afresh. If you aren't sure when you last submitted, go back to the last place of surrender and stand there and ask him if there's anything that you haven't done which he asks you to do. The most powerful weapon of spiritual warfare is that daily walk of obedience to the Lord. That's it. There is just no substitute. So now we come and we spend time in the presence and we're waiting until he sends us out against the enemy. We're in a place of loving submission to him and his lordship. 
The battle is always the Lord's, it is always his. So you have submitted to God and in that place you begin to thank him that he's with you in this and you go into worship. Sometimes by the time you've been there a while the enemy has just given up and gone away. He likes a quick kill and he loses interest. But always your first recourse is to God himself. Never ever ever go out against the enemy without first going to God.